Each spring, Pensacola Christian College hosts the Enrichment Retreat designed for pastors, ministry leaders, and church staff to enjoy a time of rest and to be refreshed by the Word of God. Today's message was from a past Enrichment Retreat keynote speaker. Visit enrichmentretreat.com for details or to learn more about the upcoming retreat. Matthew chapter 21 tonight in your Bible. Matthew chapter 21. My message will not start, the 12 minutes will not start until I say the 12 minutes start. There's an introduction and then there's a message. And I promise you my message will be 12 minutes. But my introduction might be much, much longer than that. Matthew 21. uh, Look at verse number 23. And I want us to walk through this text uh, a little bit more deliberately. So just keep your Bible open. Let's come back to it. So Matthew chapter 21. Jesus is in the last week of his public ministry. Already... He has crested the Mount of Olives. Already, he has entered Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. Already, he has cast out the money changers a second time. The second time in his ministry, he's cleansed the temple, beginning and end. And now, on Tuesday, sometimes we call this Temptation Tuesday, of the week where Jesus will be on the cross by Friday. You say, Pastor Skelly, I don't believe in a Friday crucifixion. You're not preaching. Okay, uh, but whatever day it is, this is the Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life. And watch what happens at verse number 23. And when he was come into the temple, the, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, by what authority? It was all about control. It was all about control with these guys. But by what authority doest thou these things? Who gave thee this is the, who do you think you are? You have no credentials. You have not graduated from the school of Hillel or the school of Shammai. You have no doctor's degree by your name. You're not part of the priestly family. You're not a Pharisee. You're certainly not a Sadducee. I mean, who gave you the right to speak with authority in this place? Look at verse number 24. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I also will ask you one thing. Don't, don't you love how Jesus dealt with, with, with criticism? Don't you love how Jesus dealt with these uh, would-be upenders of his ministry? He always answered a question with a question. Okay, you got a question? I got a question. Okay, you answer my question, I'll answer your question. So I will ask you also one thing, which if you tell me, I, in likewise, will tell you by what authority I do these things. And here's the question. Ready? Verse number 25. The baptism of John. Whence was it? From heaven or of men? Let's just get one easy question. Uh, the ministry, the, the, the scope and, and nature of John the Baptist's ministry. It, what, was it valid or was it invalid? Was it uh, blessed of God or was it just kind of a, 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 a human charade? I mean, what was it? Just tell me what John's ministry was, the power that undergirded it. Now, I'll tell you by what authority I preach in the temple. Verse number 23 again, and they reasoned with themselves. They, they had a huddle. You know, don't you love that? Can you picture this? Oh, okay. When I get in the corner here, they talk about this. And they're, they're all giving their opinion. And the Bible says in verse number 23, it, well, if, if we say from heaven, 
See, they're not going to give the, the truth. They're not going to give the answer. They're going to give a politically, they're going to give a political answer. So they say, uh, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not then believe him? So we can't say that. But, but if we shall say of men, then we fear the people. Now, they wouldn't admit that publicly, but they're admitting that to each other in their little group. What we fear the people for all hold John as a prophet. In other words, he has put us in a no-win situation. They can't answer the question. So they come back. I love this. And they answer Jesus and said, we don't know. We, we cannot tell. That's a very difficult question. And Jesus said, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Okay, that was our deal, guys. <laughs> that was our deal. Now, notice the next word. Because sometimes we don't make these connections when we study our Bible. At least I don't. So verse 27, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things, but. So we're about to enter into a parable, but typically when we teach the Bible, we separate the story I just told you from the parable that Jesus is about to share with them, with them. We know that a coordinating conjunction you know, connects these thoughts in an inextricable way. And so, but, 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 I, but I tell you, verse number 28, but, but, but what do you think, he said, uh, I, I want you to consider something. This is going to help you understand. What do you think? A certain man had two sons. Now, if anybody was an authority uh, talking about fathers and sons, it would be the son of God. And often when God wanted to make a most poignant point in the word of God, he would use a story about a father and a son. And so here, a father, right, a man, had two sons. And he came to the first, the first son, and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And in many respects, I speak to my brothers in Christ tonight, sisters in Christ, that's what God has told us. I mean, that's a metaphor for working for the Lord. A harvest field, a vineyard, an agricultural illustration. This is metaphoric of of what you and I do. We work in the vineyard. We work for the Father. We're a son of God. We're called of God in that sense. Look at verse number 29. He answered and said, the man, the son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered, "I, I will not. No. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a father coming and giving a direct commandment to a son and said, go work today in my vineyard. And for him verbally to look at, uh, to verbal, to, to physically look at his dad and verbally say, I will not. But that's not the end of the story. Because the Bible says in verse 29, but afterward he repented. He changed his mind. He thought about it. He reconsidered. But afterward he repented and went. So that's not ideal, but that's good. Right? That's not ideal. It's not ideal to say no to the father, but, but, it's, but, but, it, but it's good that he reflected and, and then afterward made the, the right decision. Look at verse number 30. And he came to the second and said likewise. That so means he said the exact same thing. Son, go work today in my vineyard. So he said the same thing. To the second boy. And perhaps the reason he went to the second boy is because the first boy didn't go. Or said he wouldn't go. But for whatever reason, he went to the second son. And and watch the contrast with the second son. Verse number 30. And he answered and said, I go. 
sir. Well, there we go. I mean, that's the answer. Well, I, I go, sir, but watch this, and he went not. I, I go, sir, but, but then he didn't go. Now, that's the story. That's the pithy little example that Jesus is using. And watch now what Jesus applies. Verse number 31. He says to these same ones that were asking him by what authority, who do you think you are teaching? He asked them, verse 31, whether of them twain, which of these two? Whether of them twain did the will of his father? That's not a tough question. That's kind of like Jesus looking at that lawyer and say, uh, uh, which one of these was the neighbor? Right? That's not a hard question. It's like Jesus talking to Simon, uh, the, the Pharisee, and saying, you know, which one do you think would, 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 uh, would love more? Right? I, got, I suppose the one that was forgiven. So Jesus is, is creating a story here, a parable, and he's asking a question that is obvious. No one's going to miss this. Whether of them twain did the will of his father. And watch the answer, verse 31. They say unto him, the first. And that's the right answer. They got the ding, 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 ding. They got the right answer. Absolutely. The first. Jesus saith unto them, verily, I say unto you that publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness. Oh, now we're answering the John question, aren't we? Jesus is answering the John question. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not, watch the word, you repented not afterward, that ye might believe. So that's the story. So what in the world does this story have to do with you and with me? Lord, I pray that you'd help us to discover some important principles tonight just for our own lives. Lord, not so much as leaders of churches, leaders of of people and organizers and overseers. But Lord, tonight, just as Christians, just as professed Christ followers, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. Humble us. Lord, tonight, I pray that you would do a work on the inside of us that only you can do. May the distractions of the day, the pressing thoughts of tomorrow, may they all go away for a few minutes as you help us intentionally to focus upon your holy word. Then, Lord, we're asking that your word would do what you've promised it will do. Accomplish the purpose whereto you send it. That it would give us the rebuke or the correction or the instruction that we so desperately need. Please, Lord, tonight, bless this final message of this enrichment conference. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought about these Pharisees when I first started studying the Gospels years ago. I made a comprehensive study of the, the four Gospels in a chronological way. I felt like that would be important. And I think there's obviously importance in studying uh, the Gospels the way God wrote them. Uh, but I also felt that there would be value in, in collating them and uh, viewing them harmonistically. And so I did that as well. 
when I began studying the Gospels years ago and made it a really big deal in my ministry, uh, I used to think that uh, every time the, the word uh, disciple was used or the word apostle was used, I would pay special attention because I felt like that's me. That's me. I'm, I'm, I'm the disciple. I'm the apostle, and I would see myself in them. But you know, something occurred to me after reading the Gospels a number of times that too often I say this with shame. Too often as I look at my life, I find myself mirroring more the Pharisee than I do the disciple. I don't want to be that person. But too often the Lord shows me that's the way you are. That's the attitude you have. That's the control you want. But I've had to look at it a little bit differently. I want you to think about these Pharisees, these that came to Jesus, that took such umbrage with Jesus speaking with authority in the temple. And who died and left you, boss? I think about these Pharisees in these ways. I think, first of all, these Pharisees, they hated to have their behavior challenged. They hated to have their, they, they were incensed by anybody that would challenge their behavior. For, for their behavior was the end all be all. They were the example. They were the law givers and law enforcers. And how dare you challenge my behavior? I am the standard. Jesus constantly had to come back to challenging the things that they thought they were doing that was right, like the hand watching, like the Sabbath observing, and the ways, the multifarious ways by which they made those uh, applications in vain. You do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. You make the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which you have delivered. They didn't like that. They didn't like the fact that their behaviors were challenged. They didn't like, number two, that There was a potential for them to lose popularity, control, and status. That's their fear here. Their fear in Matthew 21 is they did not want to lose popularity, control, and status. Well, I want to have all the people I ever had and more. I want to have all the influence I ever had more. I want popularity and control and status. And they were unwilling to let that go. We'll do any. We'll lie. That's what they did here. They lied. They got together in a huddle and they agreed to lie because they didn't want to lose popularity, control, and status. They didn't want their behavior challenged. They didn't want to lose their popularity, control, and status. They were completely content with the status quo. Why? Because it was working for their benefit. We can control what happens in the temple. We can control the money that comes through the temple. We're the ones that set the exorbitant uh, interest rates on the exchange of money. We're the ones that sell these turtle doves for inflated prices and make good money. We're the ones that have the status and we're the ones that have the popular. We, they were content with the status. I wonder sometimes if that's not us in our ministries. Okay, let me just be more... I don't want to be judgmental. Let me just say, I wonder sometimes if that's not me. I wonder if, if, if I have arrived at the place in my ministry where I'm unwilling to have my behaviors challenged. Maybe my priorities are wrong. 
Maybe I'm the one that's really in love with and bothered by a loss of popularity or a loss of perceived control or a loss of maybe some inflated status. And I will do anything to retain that. I wonder. I wonder sometimes if I'm not the one that's just content with status quo. And so the story that Jesus tells is really a poignant story. Because it speaks to these Pharisees, but I think in some ways it speaks to me. And I think if you're honest, down deep in your heart, I think you'd have to admit that sometimes this vineyard work, or sometimes this serve God work, sometimes we're not nearly as faithful to it as we think that we are. So I want to show you tonight what I'll call three responses. Three responses. And we want to focus on the third response. You say, well, Kurt, I, I saw... Two responses in the story. You talked about the first son, and the first son said, I will not, but then he did. And then the second son said, but, but uh, I will, but then he didn't. And that's, that's it. The story ended there. So where's the third? The third response was the response that Jesus was expect, expecting from them. Jesus told the whole story for a response. Guys, what do you think? And he wasn't asking for necessarily the right academic answer because giving the right academic answer is relatively easy. He's not looking for the right academic answer. We've got that. We know. We do- hey, listen, as independent Baptists, we can dot our I's. We can cross our T's. We can give the right answer. But that's not what he's looking for here. Not the right answer alone. He was looking for the right application. And that's a response that involves not just the heart, but our whole life and our priorities and who we are. So I want to see tonight that third response in my heart. I'd like to see tonight a third response from our hearts to the Lord about his vineyard in which we're supposed to be serving. So look at them, okay? Number one, look at the first response. Interesting. The first response. Matthew chapter 21. Look, please, if you would, again, at verse number 27. Matthew chapter 21, verse number 27, where the Bible says, uh, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things, but, but, but what think you? Here, here's something I want you to, to consider, and that this was uh, common in the Bible. Why? Because sometimes uh, a story about somebody else helps us to see things more clearly. Because it takes away the smudgy lens of self-justification. If I tell you a story about you, you're going to get defensive. If I tell you a story about your life or say, hey, why did you do this? Or why, you know, you're going to get just, you're going to get self-justifying. But if I tell you a story about somebody else, all of a sudden, okay, well, let me be objective about this. It's like there was this guy that, that, that had all these sheep and this other guy that just had one little sheep that he treated like a pet. And this traveler came to town and, and the, the rich man that had all these sheep took the poor man's sheep and, and killed it and served it to the traveler. And David, what do you think about that? I think we ought to kill him. That's what I think. But it's amazing how crystal clear David could see when it was somebody else. We're all that way. And so Jesus masterfully gives an illustration by way of parable so that we can see somebody else and then make the right decision and then have it superimposed back upon our life to say, no, no, I wasn't talking about some random son, some random father. I was talking about you. That's the conviction moment. So let's look at the first response. Where the father says in verse number 28, a certain man 
He had two sons, and he came to the first, and he said, now, now I know it's a short little clause here, but look at it. Son, go to work today in my vineyard. So what do I see about the first response? First of all, I see a relationship. The, the, the father came to uh, the son by virtue of and on the basis of the relationship. That's why he began the son go to work today in my vineyard. Does the father have prerogative to tell the son what to do? Absolutely. There's an authoritative prerogative. That's the whole bit of the story, right? Authority. Uh, there's an authoritative prerogative for the father to tell a son what to do. And by the way, God has authoritative prerogative in your life. You're a son of God. You're a child of God. And God has authoritative prerogative to put you where he wants to put you. To lead you in ministry where he wants to lead you. And I'll say, yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. And I'll say, yes, Lord, yes, I will trust you and obey. When your spirit speaks to me with my whole heart, I'll agree. My answer will be, yes, Lord, yes, that ought to be all of us. And so the father came to the son by virtue of relationship. And relationship connotes authority. But not only does relationship connote authority, I would expect my sons to look at their dad as an authority in their life. And not necessarily so much now that I am having adult sons, but certainly, certainly as a teenager, I can't imagine saying, uh, son, take the trash out. I will not. Oh, yes, you will. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I can't imagine my son saying that. Right? But that's what this son said. So the, the command was given by virtue of authority. And then I think, number two, by affection. I think when the father comes and says, son. Son, he's coming to him in terms of the relationship. Son. There ought to be a natural affection. Every son has a natural desire to please his father. That's why I struggled so much and probably still do with so many insecurities in my life. Why? Because my dad left us when I was almost four. And my mom did a wonderful job trying to make ends meet and working side jobs and paying the bills. She really did. But it's impossible for a mom to be a mom and a dad. She tried her best. And then she remarried when I was 10. And now I had a stepfather who didn't really like me, but that was okay because I didn't really like him because he was unreasonable. He said things like, make your bed. What in the world are you talking about? You know, you, I had to do chores every Saturday for two whole hours. I mean, that's like Gestapo level. He's my biggest fan today. I love him dearly. He's my dad. But I'm going to tell you something. By the time I was 18, I had never heard I love you from a biological dad. And I had never heard I love you from a stepdad. I'm going to tell you something. When, when there's not a father-son bona fide relationship, that, there's issues. And this father said to his son, son, there ought to be a readiness. There ought to be a, 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 a readiness to say yes Father, I delight to do thy will. There ought to be that, but there, but there wasn't here. And so what do I see? I see, first of all, relationship. But watch this, number two. 
Not only do I see relationship in this command, but I, I see responsibility in this command. Uh, my, my, uh, my son, or son rather, go work today in my vineyard. Go work today. My son, go work today. That, that's, that's easy. And what did that mean? It was comprehensive. Was that planting? I don't know. Was it that time of year? Was that watering? I don't know. Was it that time of year? Uh, was that reaping? I don't know. Was it that time? Whatever it was, this son would have a full knowledge of what that meant. Hey, go all of its work. All of its work. Go work today in my vineyard. Go out and work. And by the way, that's what God expects of us. God doesn't expect for us to bring results per se. He didn't expect for us to build a big church per se. He didn't expect for us to have a big crowd per se. Those are the wrong, uh, those are the wrong targets at which we aim. No, he expects for us to be faithful. Go work today, plant and water, and I'm going to give increase according to my grace, but just do your job. That's what the Father says here. The Father says, go work today. It's responsibility. I learned that obedience is a matter of action, not intention. Obedience is a matter of action, not intention. I I learned number two, obedience is a matter of now, not later. Right? Go work today in my vineyard. So to work tomorrow is disobedience. To say I will, but not, that's disobedience too. Why? Because work is, obedience is a matter of of action, not intention. It's a matter of of now, not later. Uh, Obedience is a matter of stewardship, not ownership. Go work today in my vineyard. This is not your church, not your people. These are, this is my church. These are my people. This is, this, is my, this is my vineyard. This is my harvest. So go work. This is, you are a steward. That's why the Apostle Paul said, I don't care what you think about me. I don't even try to think things about myself. I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ one day and let it be accounted of me that I'm just a minister. I'm a bond slave uh, I, 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 of Jesus Christ. And I just want to be faithful because it's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. And obedience is a matter of stewardship, not ownership. But there's a lot here. There's a lot here for me. And a lot here for you. Relationship and responsibility. I preached a message, oh, I guess a year or two ago on, on celebrity pastors. You don't have to pastor a church of 2,000 people to be a celebrity pastor. Celebrity pastor is not a matter of your church size. It's a matter of your pride size. The Apostle Paul dealt with celebrity pastors in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He basically used three words for what his job was among the Corinthians who were more than willing to make him celebrity. There were people at, Corinthian, at, at, at Corinth that said, hey, listen, he's our guy. Paul, Paul, he's our man. He can't preach it. Nobody can. I mean, that was it, right? And Paul was willing to downplay. Paul said, no, you, no you're wrong for glorifying me. He said, here, let, let, let me tell you who I am. I'm a minister. I'm a table waiter. You know that back in Bible days, a table waiter, we picture the guy at, at, at Red Lobster. You know, can I, can I refill your Coke Zero? By the way, if you have to ask, that's a bad waiter, okay? They need to be refilling your Coke. Am I right about that, okay? But we picture that as a table That's not a table waiter in the Bible, no, and in, in, in the table, the term table waiter in the Bible referred to those that would serve at these huge feasts 
where people would, would gorge themselves for hours and hours. And they would, they would actually recline on these benches that were uh, almost at eye level. And the waiter would come and, sir, and serve people like this. And they'd be reclining and bring food and food. And then the person, after a while, would be so full, they would expectorate. They would induce vomiting so they could eat more. And the table waiter would be the one that would clean it up and feed them up and clean it up. Paul said, you want to think about me? I'm a table waiter. That's what I do. I deal with the dirty. I deal with, the, I deal with other th- people, the things that no one else wants to deal with. I, 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 I serve at people's feet. That's what I am. You know what I am? I'm a farmer. I'm a husbandman. That's what I do. You know what I do? I plant. You know what my partner over here does? He waters. You know what God does? Everything. He does all the real work. Matter of fact, without God doing the real work, planters are just hole diggers. And without God doing the real work, waterers are just mud makers. Matter of fact, without God's blessing on our ministry, we are hole diggers and mud makers. So that's who I am. A minister, a farmer, a builder. That's what I am. I'm a builder. I'm not the decorator. You say, oh, wow, I just love what you've done with the place. That's not me. I'm the guy that puts the two-by-fours up. I'm, I'm the guy that uh, builds the frame. Jesus is the foundation. The other foundation can no man lay, lay that, that is laid. But I'm the wise master builder. And God, he's already giving me the blueprints. He's giving me the plans. And I just nail it into place. And I just put it up with nothing fancy about it. That's what I am. That's the point. Relationship. Responsibility. Rebellion. Do you see it? Son. Go work today in my vineyard, but watch the rebellion. Verse number 29, he answered and said, I will not. No. I don't know if we have any teenagers in here tonight, but I, if we do, just I want you to try something. Just go home tonight and just do this. and Let, let me know how it works out. <laughs> I will not. See, it was not a matter of the head. He knew what to do. Our, our disobedience is rarely a matter of ignorance. Our disobedience is rarely a matter of ignorance. No, it wasn't a matter of the head. It wasn't a matter of the hands. It wasn't that he was physically disabled. And when his dad said, go work today in my vineyard, that somehow, you know, well, I'm sick or I'm disabled or I can't and I'm ill-equipped. No, God will never ask you to do something that he, by his grace, cannot equip you to do. He never will. Where God guides, he provides. Where God leads, he feeds. We know all that. So it was not a matter of the head. It was not a matter of the hand. It was a matter of the heart. This was willful rebellion. No, I'm not. And I know that you and I do that a little bit more maybe uh, nicely. But the fact is, when we don't, we're saying to the Lord, I will not. We are being presumptuous. We are saying no. We are looking God in the face and saying, no, I'm not going to do that. So there's rebellion. Sometimes the far country is a place we go. Sometimes the far country is an attitude we have. Relationship responsibility, rebellion. But watch this. I love this. Notice his repentance. Would you see that? Look at verse number 29. He answered and said, I will not. Here's my favorite word in the entire parable. He answered and said, I will not, but afterward. Do you see that? Afterward, afterward he repented. How long afterward? 
No doubt the dad came in the morning. That's when you would tell someone to go to work. Hey, son, get up. Let's go to work. Go to work today in my vineyard. Got a lot to do. But he said, no, I'm not going to. Dad, no, I will not. Dad walks away. Was it an hour later? Hypothetically, was it two hours later? Was it five hours? We don't know, but it was afterward. So between the time he said no and the time that he actually went, there was a time of conviction. There was a time of unrest. A time of unsettling. A time when he knew to do that's right but didn't do it. And he that knows to do what's right and does it not to him, it's a sin. I think sometimes in ministry, we know what we're supposed to be doing. We know the priorities we're supposed to be having. And we're not. And we're, we're unsettled about that. Aren't you glad there's afterward? I think there are three implications to the word afterward. I think, first of all, afterward is often how we hear. Afterward is often how we hear. Sometimes in, rebu- in rebukes moment, we don't hear. Because we, we just, we just, we, 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 we're chagrined by it. Uh, we don't want to do it. We just, we just, sometimes in the, in the moment of the command, it's just, but then when we stop and think about it, well, that was dumb. That's my dad. That's my job. That's my calling. I need to, I need to, I need to get right. I need to get out and get back busy. That's afterward. Afterward is often the way we hear. And can I just say, be gracious to other people. Be gracious to people in your church. Sometimes we just expect for people to obey, to do, just because they heard the one message that you preached. But that's not how you obey. That's not how I obey. So understand that afterward often is the way that people hear. Number two, afterward suggests that there is hope. That there's a space of grace. Why would God let me serve him? I mean, if I can't serve him in the moment, then why would God, God, who's asking me to partner with him, why would he give me one second chance after I say no? But he does. And you didn't get saved the first time you heard the gospel, most of you. And you didn't follow God the first time he told you to come, most of you. And most of us need repeated commands from God, and most people do. And aren't you glad that God works on the basis sometimes of afterward? Afterward gives us hope. So afterward is how we hear. Afterward oftentimes is what gives us hope. But watch this, lest we think, well, I'm always going to wait then. I mean, if we serve an afterward God, then I guess I can be a full-time procrastinator. No, no, think about this. Afterward makes things hard. The Bible says in Proverbs 13, 15 that the way of transgressors is what? Hard. See, it's harder to do eight hours work in six hours. It's harder to do eight hours work in four hours. It's harder to do the work that you could have done in the cool of the morning now in the heat of the afternoon. So he did go to work and he did do what his father told him to do, but it's harder That's why we tell our young people. uh, That's why Solomon lived his whole life and said, well, I had all this wisdom, but I decided, let me just try it out on my own. And so uh, Proverbs is this is the way I should have lived. And Ecclesiastes, this is the way I did live. And I came to the same conclusion, which is, man, uh, dad was right. And remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. I mean, get busy now. Why? Go in the morning. Seek him early. Why? Because as we prolong the afterwards of our life, it just makes things harder and harder and harder. The first response. 
Watch this quickly, the second response. The first response oh, I'm, I, I, I would be one of relationship, one of responsibility. I don't think I gave you the word. One of rebellion, one of repentance. That's it, repentance. Afterward, afterward, repentance. Now watch this, number two. And he came to the second and said likewise. He said the exact same thing. Son, go work today in my vineyard. He said, this is refreshing. And no doubt it was refreshing to this human father who did not know the heart of his son as a human being. He could just hear his words. And the Bible teaches here that he said, I go, sir. But he didn't go. I go, sir. But he didn't go. So what was the second son's response? I think, first of all, it was respectful. He recognized the authority of the father and pledged compliance. Son, clean your room. Yes, sir. Uh, uh, honey, I want you to help mom get ready for dinner. Uh, uh, yes, sir. But that, that's a good, right? We, we expect, we teach our kids that. So unlike the first one, there's not this outward, cynical, verbal rebellion. It's refreshing. I go, sir. But how often does Jesus warn the Pharisees of honoring God with their lips, but rebelling in their hearts. And I find that that's, that's me. If I say, I love God, but I hate my brother, I'm a liar. He that loveth not God, he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? This commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God, love his brother also. Hereby perceive we the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother hath need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in, in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. You see, I'm this guy. Yes, God. Hey, amen. Well, we're good at that. But it comes down to it. Talk is cheap. A man may say, thou was faith. I have works. Show me thy faith. Without thy works. I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest as one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Wilt thou know, obey men, that faith without works is dead? We can say whatever we want to say. But talk is cheap. This man said the right thing. And we live sometimes in a movement where we say the right things, but saying is not obedience. It was respectful. It was right. Simply put, he responded to the simple command with a promise of simple obedience. This is what we want. Respectful, it was right, but listen, it was rebellious. The words themselves. I wrote this down respectful rebellion might be the worst kind of rebellion of all because it feigns agreement and honor but denies authority. Sometimes if we're not careful, we create climates of compliance. We create climates of compliance because we don't allow there to be any connection or any conversation and we have these compliant children in compliant environments, and it looks so robust, and it looks so good from the outside in, and then kids run away 
43%. They run away at age 18. Well, where did that come from? Well, I can't believe they all of a sudden became rebellion. They didn't all of a sudden become rebellious. Because compliance is rebellion's best disguise. But we've got to be willing to deal with the hard issues. It was right. It was respectful. But it was rebellious. They, they profess, Paul said, about those Cretan false teachers. They profess. They talk about it. They profess that they know God, but in works, they deny him. Being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work, reprobate. It's not what you say, but be a doers of the word, not hearers only. Deceiving your own selves. You can live in self-deception when you live in the say-so world. Deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. He beholds himself and goeth his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man, the doer, this man, shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious and brightless now his tongue, he's a liar. This man's religion is vain. Pure religion, undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fathers and widows in their affliction to keep himself unspotted by the world. Boy, we can talk is cheap. Blah, blah, blah. And so there's a first response. And then there's a second response. And then finally tonight, there's a third response. There's a your response. Look at verse number 31 in closing. Verse number 31. Whether of them twain... Did the will of who's really doing the will of God here? Who's really doing the will of the Father here? And they gave the right answer. I'll tell you who it is the first guy. They saw it. It's the uh, kill him, that stealer of sheep. David saw it. It's, it's the lawyer saying, I suppose him that was neighbor, he saw it. We, we see it. We don't have a problem seeing it. We have a problem applying it. Their answer was right, but their application was wrong. Jesus was giving them an afterward opportunity. He showed them their sin. He showed them themselves. And he said, now, guys, here's your opportunity. I'm showing you why I have this authority. I'm showing you this. Now, you have an opportunity right now. That's why harlots and publicans are going to get there when you're not. And the thing is, now that you see it, after, now when you saw that in John's ministry, and when you saw it afterward, you didn't repent. Even afterward, when you finally saw it, you still didn't repent. So you're the first son and the second son. Because you said you wouldn't, and then you didn't. So you're the worst of both responses. Watch with me the end of the chapter, and we're going to be done. Look at it. Matthew chapter 21. And verse number 45. Here it is. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, these are the ones to whom he's been speaking this whole time. In this chapter, he tells them not one story. He tells them four stories. And the story I told you tonight is just one of four stories. And in this one of four stories, uh, Jesus made the same point he made in all the other stories. 
And the Bible says the chief priests, I mean, that's the big guys. And the Pharisees, they heard all of it. And watch this. They perceived that he spake of them. So they heard it, and they understood it, and they knew that it was pointed at them. That's all we can ask for in a message, is that people will hear it, people will understand it, and people will realize this is not for my neighbor, and this is not for the person behind me, this is for me. That's what every pastor, that's what every preacher hopes for, those three realities. But watch the response in verse number 46. But when they sought to lay, but they, but when they sought to lay hands on him, their response was, get rid of the messenger. Now, they couldn't because they were afraid of the multitude, but their intention was just shut him up. I know that we're not Jesus rejectors, and I know that this doesn't completely apply to us, but... I wonder how often in ministry this is us. We don't want to hear any rebuke. We want to maintain our status quo. We don't retain a level of or increase our level of popularity control. We don't want to change our own behavior. We just want gimmicks and methods and programs and helps to make this thing bigger and easier and better. And where is the humble heart of a servant of God to say, oh God, I want to be that son that says, Lord, yes. And oh God, I want to be that son that says, I'll go. And Lord, if nobody knows who I am, and if nobody applauds me, and God, if nobody sees the work that I do for you in your vineyard, it doesn't matter because I'm the son You're my dad. That's what it's all about. You've been listening to a message from the Pensacola Christian College Enrichment Retreat. You're welcome to pass this message along to others, but we ask that you do not charge for it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. If you're a pastor or ministry leader, join us for the next Enrichment Retreat and experience a time of physical rest and spiritual refreshment. To learn more, visit enrichmentretreat.com.